Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Endocrinology. In part one of this podcast, Dr. Stephen Graves, a medical physicist, and Dr. Anna Keese, a radiation oncologist, provide a primer on radiopharmaceuticals in adult solid tumours. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Advanced Accelerator Applications International SA and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first interview, Dr. Stephen Graves discusses the rationale for radiopharmaceuticals in solid tumours, their mechanisms of action and biological effects. So my name is Dr. Stephen Graves. I am a medical physicist and assistant professor of radiology in the Division of Nuclear Medicine at the University of Iowa in the United States. And today the topic of discussion is radiopharmaceuticals in principle, mechanism of action and biologic effects. How do we design radiopharmaceuticals for clinical applications? The first step in designing a new radiopharmaceutical is identifying a biologic feature that is overexpressed on tumor targets. Often this is the the result of of many years of uh, genetics and and proteomics and preclinical work leading to the identification of a target that can be developed for for drug discovery and for radiopharmaceutical development. So once a target is identified, the the radiopharmaceuticals for therapy generally consist of three main components, a biological targeting vector that binds to that target in vivo. Uh, as well as a a chelator that can be used to uh, conjugate and retain a wide array of different radioisotopes for imaging and for therapy. And uh, to bind the chelator to the the targeting vector, there's often a a linker, which uh, can be used to modify the overall pharmacokinetic properties of the radiopharmaceutical. So for example, making the linker a little bit longer would make the compound more lipophilic, more likely to clear by the hepatobiliary tract, and a little bit shorter would make it more hydrophilic and therefore more likely to clear by the renal pathway. So the other considerations with respect to developing a new radiopharmaceutical are uh, what type of radiation do you want the radioisotope to emit? So we have primarily alpha emitters, primarily beta emitters, primarily gamma emitters used for imaging. We also wanna consider the half-life of the radioisotope. So if it's too short, uh, a therapy compound would have most of its radioactive decay occurring when the the compound is still located in the blood, as opposed to localizing to the tumor surface and decaying uh, proximal to the tumor cells themselves. And if the half-life is too long, although the the uptake in the tumor may be avid, the dose rate may be too low to affect a meaningful accumulation of, of DNA damage to, uh, to deactivate uh, tumor cells within the tumor microenvironment. So we want to think about uh, sort of an intermediate half-life for developing therapies. And we want to be uh, mindful of of, uh, daughter products. If the radioisotope decays to a radioactive daughter itself, we want to understand the biologic fate of those daughter radioisotopes. What are the differences between alpha and beta-emitting radionuclides? So the the different radioisotopes that we use uh, for therapy are either considered alpha emitters, which decay with the emission of a helium nucleus, these relatively large, positively charged particle, uh, or or decay by beta emission, which is the emission of a high energy electron. And these two types of radiation interact and induce biologic effects in quite different ways. So the alpha emitter will uh, deliver its energy along a very short path length with with quite a lot of ionization in sort of a linear track 
Whereas the electron, the beta particle, will have a tendency to sparsely ionize and travel relatively large distances between creating clusters of ionization in the body. And as a result, uh, the primary mode of DNA damage for alpha particles is induction of, of double-strand uh, DNA breaks. So a single alpha particle traversal of a cell nucleus is likely to induce uh, a large number of, of double-strand breaks in the DNA as opposed to to uh, beta particles, which uh, will will induce small clusters of damage, uh, primarily single strand breaks that will build up given adequate dose and dose rate to uh, lethal double strand breaks. But it turns out that the mechanism of damage for low LAT radiation is much more chemical in nature. So creating a free radical species is primarily the mode of inducing single strand breaks. And these free radicals can diffuse and cause that damage to the DNA, but it can also be uh, uh, neutralized by uh, antioxidants such as superoxide dismutase or radical scavengers, uh, including sulfhydryl-based compounds. And then once those single strand breaks occur, they can either be chemically repaired or they can be uh, made more permanent by oxygen effects, or they can be enzymatically repaired. And so in general, we think of the, the high LET alpha radiation as being much more damaging per, per unit dose uh, on the order of, of, of three to seven times more potent in terms of uh, cell killing uh, in comparison with low LET uh, beta radiation. What are the current approaches to dose symmetry when using radiopharmaceuticals? So a real strength of using radiopharmaceuticals for therapy are that they are inherently radioactive. And it turns out that you know radioactivity... Uh, is quite easy to detect and allows for uh, 3D imaging after administration of a compound to an individual. So for patient-specific dosimetry, the, the typical workflow would be to administer either a small quantity of the therapeutic radiopharmaceutical or uh, to administer the, the therapy itself, and then to uh, take that patient and, and scan them with a, a SPEC-CT scanner, single photon tomography, uh, a few times over the course of the decay of that radiopharmaceutical, generally um, scanning you know, at, at 24 hours, 48 hours, and maybe a 96-hour time point. And that data allows you to characterize the, the concentration of activity in various organs and tissues throughout the body as a, a function of time. Uh, and based on that, we're able to calculate the total number of radioactive decays that's occurring in, uh, in normal organs as well as tumor tissues. And that allows us to compute the radiation dose. Additionally, because we have the, the dose rate effects, we're able to model the biologic effects of radiation, uh, thereby allowing us to convert between, say, uh, external beam radiotherapy dose treatment schedules and uh, the radiopharmaceutical dose, uh, dose rate and dose effects, and, and thereby allowing us to predict the, the biologic effects from the radiation and allowing us to patient-tailor uh, patient our treatments so that you don't uh, exceed normal organ dose limits, and you also uh, are able to ensure that you're able to get enough radiation dose to the tumors themselves. What are the potential side effects and off-target effects to consider when using radiopharmaceuticals? So although uh, radiopharmaceutical therapies are quite effective for binding to the cancer cells and, and the tumor microenvironment and causing the, the intended effect, there are some off-target uh, uh, radiation-related effects to consider. So because most of these therapies are injected in intravenously and, and into the blood supply initially, uh, the blood uh, perfuses the bone marrow and the bone marrow 
being a relatively proliferative tissue, uh, tends to be more radiosensitive. So in, in many of these therapies, we do see some degree of, of myelosuppression that is not uh, too dissimilar to other uh, cytotoxic chemotherapies. Uh, also, uh, uh, elevated radiation dose is seen in structures of uh, clearance, clearance organs, so the kidneys and the liver, which play a role in uh, removing radioactivity and peptides and, and various compounds from the blood, uh, will will see an elevated level of radiation dose, and have been uh, have been observed as being uh, treatment limiting or dose limiting uh, in some in some cases. Uh, other tissues uh, of interest would be those that express the receptor that we're actually targeting on the on the tumor. So in some cases, there is some normal endogenous expression of the therapeutic target. And so in those cases, we have to, to be mindful. Um, and so in terms of normal tissue effects, um, you know, if, if the DNA damage is, is repaired and there's sufficient cell survival, we generally don't see any effects below a certain uh, absorbed dose threshold. But beyond that threshold, the effects can, can, can build up. Additionally, um, stochastic effects uh, occur whenever uh, normal tissue DNA damage is misrepaired. Uh, most of the time, DNA misrepair has no meaningful change in the biology of an individual cell lineage. However, it is possible to induce uh, secondary malignancies, most commonly uh, secondary hematologic malignancies, but uh, uh, late induction of solid tumors are, are theoretically possible. Why are radiopharmaceuticals suited to the management of solid tumors? Radiopharmaceuticals have been quite effective and demonstrated to be effective in a number of, of solid uh, cancer uh, uh, indications, including uh, somatostatin receptor positive neuroendocrine tumors, um, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, pheochromocytoma and paraganglioma, as well as a number of old, uh, other indications that have been uh, more um, re relevant for a longer period of time. In general, these, these compounds are well-suited to metastatic uh, tumors because they are, again, a systemic therapy that can localize to small clusters of disease that are not necessarily visualized on radiographic imaging. Um, additionally, uh, the the range of the beta and alpha particles can be sufficient to induce uh, immune response to systemic uh, disease in the body, and therefore, uh, they are really quite flexible in treating a wide range of, um, of solid tumors, particularly metastatic disease where a local definitive therapy is not a viable treatment approach. Um, additionally, there are a number of, of radiopharmaceuticals in development. So although there have been about four therapies approved in the last 10 years, there are more than 50 that are currently in clinical trials and are being developed. And if a small number of those make it to uh, clinical approval, that really will significantly improve and increase the number of, of uh, uh, types of tumors that can be treated using this, uh, this paradigm. Thank you for those interesting insights, Dr. Graves. Now let's move on to our next topic with Dr. Anna Keese, who will discuss when to consider radiopharmaceuticals in patients with solid tumors. Hello, my name is Anna Keese, and I'm an Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology and Molecular Radiation Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and a practicing radiation oncologist at the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you for joining me today as we take a look at radiopharmaceutical approaches in the management of adult solid tumors. When should we consider radiopharmaceuticals in the diagnosis and treatment of adult solid tumors? Radiopharmaceuticals include agents for imaging, therapy, or both. Some agents are designed specifically for imaging, like gallium PSMA that targets the prostate-specific membrane antigen for prostate cancer, 
or gallium dotatate that targets the somatostatin receptor for neuroendocrine cancers. These emit positrons for PET imaging. Other agents are designed specifically for therapy, uh, such as lutetium PSMA or lutetium dotatate uh, that emit beta particles or electrons that cause DNA damage for treating tumors. And we also have the ability to often directly image the therapeutic agents, such as those that are labeled with lutetium, using SPECT scans so that we can do dosimetry calculations. For clinical considerations, these agents are approved by regulatory agencies for therapy when they show efficacy and safety in a specific patient population, and there have been multiple recent regulatory approvals uh, for various cancers. Specific patients are actually often screened for the therapy using imaging that is paired. In development, there are many new agents that are up and coming for most solid tumor types, uh, as most solid tumors respond to radiotherapy. The development of these agents and the choosing of specific targets is related to the relative uptake in tumors versus normal tissues. So biodistribution and pharmacokinetics play a large role in determining what the final absorbed dose is to tumors versus normal tissues. And these absorbed doses are directly related to tumor response and toxicities. What radiopharmaceutical modalities are available and or in development? Most radiopharmaceutical constructs consist of three parts. It's the radionuclide itself that emits radiation, various linkers and chelators, and the ligand or ligands that bind to targets. There are a variety of different ligands that range from smallest to largest to include small molecules, peptides, minibodies, antibodies, and nanoparticles. And there are various properties that uh, are amenable to different applications with these different ligands. So, for example, uh, small molecules such as lutetium PSMA have rapid tumor uptake, rapid clearance from the bloodstream, and very good uh, solid tumor penetration. Larger molecules like antibodies and nanoparticles have often a longer circulation time um, and can have specific properties that lead to tumor retention. There is some concern for these sometimes for hematologic toxicities due to the longer circulation time. Antibodies and nanoparticles can be very readily engineered to bind to multiple targets. There are also microspheres, which are not ligand targeted, but are physically targeted due to their large size. They're uh, infused directly into specific arterial circulations and then lodge into the microvessels of tumors, such as in the liver, they can be infused into the hepatic artery for liver tumors. What radiopharmaceuticals are currently approved in adult oncology indications? Radiopharmaceuticals have actually been in clinical use for decades, with the first being radioactive iodine that is given orally and taken up into thyroid cancer cells and has been integral in the management of thyroid cancer for decades. 
There was also bone-targeted agents such as samarium, samarium and strontium that are used for have been used for bone metastases since the 1990s and early 2000s, as well as liver radioembolization with Y90 microspheres. In the past 10 years, we've seen the fruition of many years of development in radiochemistry and molecular biology to allow for more rapid development of small molecules and peptides targeting specific molecules for specific cancers. So this has led to the approval of multiple agents in since 2013. In 2013, there was FDA approval of radium-223 for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with symptomatic bone metastases. This is a calcium analog that is taken up into areas of bone turnover and emits alpha particles. In 2018, we had approval of iodine MIBG for advanced pheochromocytoma and paraganglioma that targets the adrenaline receptor as well as lutetium dotatate that binds the somatostatin receptor and is used for treatment of mid-gut neuroendocrine tumors. And then finally, just last year, we had FDA approval of lutetium PSMA 617 for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer that binds the prostate-specific membrane antigen and is also a beta emitter. What's on the horizon for radiopharmaceuticals in adult solid tumors? There are many agents in development in radiopharmaceutical therapies. For example, there are several agents that are in development that also target the somatostatin receptor and prostate-specific membrane antigen. These include other beta emitters and some agents that are labeled with alpha emitters, including actinium-225 and lead-212. Alpha emitters have a much higher uh, density of double-strand breaks in the DNA and therefore have the potential to have a more potent tumor response. And they also have a shorter penetration distance that may limit certain toxicities. There are also agents in development for many new targets for solid tumors. This includes gastrin-releasing peptide receptor for GIST, breast cancer, and prostate cancer, the fibroblast activation protein, which is expressed in the tumor stroma of many solid tumors, HK2 for prostate cancer and some other solid tumors, and many, many other targets on the horizon. What more is needed to support integration of radiopharmaceuticals into clinical pathways in adult oncology? Radiopharmaceuticals are a naturally interdisciplinary endeavor and include the critical involvement of nuclear medicine physicians, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, medical physicists, and radiation safety. So there are certain complexities and needs associated with this. There's international needs in terms of the availability of radionuclides and specific agents and uh, high need uh, and meeting supply and demand. There's also international needs in terms of the workforce and expanding education and clinical training, which is part of why we're here today. And there are logistical needs for both patient care and for research. In terms of patient care, it's often related to establishing new facilities and radiation safety measures to appropriately have radiation protection and management of radioactive waste. In research, there's a 
great need for investigation of radiobiology and radiation dosimetry for these agents to optimize their treatment properties and combination therapies. And altogether, these challenges are very worth addressing to bring these agents into the clinic for the treatment of our patients. Thank you, Dr. Keys, for sharing your insights on current and emerging radiopharmaceutical options in patients with solid tumours. In part two of this podcast, Professor Jorge Garcia, Dr. Jason Starr and Dr. Eric Mitra share their insights on radiopharmaceuticals in neuroendocrine tumours and prostate cancer and provide guidance to support their integration into daily clinical practice. Our first topic in this section with Professor Jorge Garcia discusses current and future perspectives on theranostics for prostate cancer. My name is Jorge Garcia. I'm a medical geo-oncologist and the current chair of the Solid Tumor Oncology Division and University Hospitals Sideman Cancer Center, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Today, we'll review the current and future perspectives on diagnostics in patients with prostate cancer. What is the current status and role of radiopharmaceuticals in the management of prostate cancer? A lot of things have changed in the management of um, metastatic castration-sensitive and metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer over the last decade. Uh, Certainly, we have made uh, significant improvements in the outcome of our patients with advanced disease, uh, where we now have almost 10-plus life-prolonging therapies in the context of advanced disease. I think the biggest uh, effort that we have made over the last uh, probably a decade or so, certainly in the European region, in the Australian region, and now more recently in the United States, is the recognition that the old imaging technology that we used to use for uh, sort of assessment, uh, getting a sense as to what people's objective disease was before initiating therapy, um, we now recognize that bone scans with technetium. Uh, CT scans have become somewhat obsolete for us in clinical practice. And now most of us are using, obviously, uh, PET imaging with very sophisticated uh, metabolic compounds such as uh, choline PET. Uh, we use F18. Uh, also now F18 and choline PET becoming a bit obsolete to some extent with the access to uh, F18 uh, PSMA and also uh, gallium-168 uh, PSMA PET. Perhaps what is more important than this is now that you have identified, you know, uh, PSMA as a therapeutic target uh, using imaging and novel imaging technology. Now we have the ability to actually, once you identify a patient with metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer with PSMA avid disease, now you can actually use that as a therapeutic target. Uh, looking at, for instance, a lutetian uh, 177 PSMA and many of the new regimens coming down the pipe for um, instead of in drug development for acid castration-resistant disease. So a major change in the management of our patients, not only from the imaging perspective, but also from the therapeutic perspective as well. What have we learned about the value of PSMA-based theranostics in prostate cancer from pivotal trial data? So we have learned two things. We have learned the importance of imaging technology for diagnosis to identify disease. On the left, you can see examples of that. We can actually use PET imaging with PSMA as a a metabolic target, if you will, looking at biochemical recurrence, identifying patients uh, who are undergoing for local definitive therapy with surgery, 
Uh, so clearly a huge improvement in sensitivity and specificity where we are now able to detect disease at a very low PSA. It changes the natural history, it changes how we manage those patients, but certainly very important in the management of our patients. On the right, you can see data from the pivotal trials. Therapy at the bottom looking at nutrition PSMA-based approaches against cabacitaxel. And on the top, you see the vision data, again, uh, leading to the approval of nutrition PSMA um, for patients with metastatic castration-resistant disease. Again, medium PFS improvements in favor of lutetium PSMA-based therapy. Uh, therapy did not use uh, progression-free as a primary endpoint, used PSA decline as a primary endpoint. But regardless, if you can look at the PFS at 12 months, you still see a significant difference for those patients who receive you know, lutetium PSMA over chemotherapy. Equally important is the fact that if you look at this slide on the left, you can see again the primary endpoint for the vision data looking at survival benefit. There was a significant improvement in overall survival for those patients receiving lutetium PSMA plus a standard of care uh, against a standard of care, 15.3 months against 11.3 months, has a ratio 0.62 with a statistical p-value. In therapy, although primary endpoint was no survival, there was no difference in the outcome compared to cabacitaxel-based therapy, but yet again, an effective treatment for those patients. On the right, you can see again the value of uh, uh, SUV. Undoubtedly, this is the data that actually many of us are paying attention to. The greater the SUV, the more likely for you to benefit from therapy. Again, a striking difference in RPFS and also in median survival for those patients based upon a percentile of SUV uptake, the mean SUV, the higher the SUV, the more likely for you to benefit from therapy, something that now we are paying attention to as people move into lutetium PSMA best there. What are the key safety considerations when integrating lutetium-177 PSMA radioligand therapy into the management of patients with prostate cancer? I think the safety considerations are important for us. Uh, these agents don't come without toxicity. Obviously, you know, most of our patients, if not all of our patients, I should say, come from the chemotherapy uh, space. They have had either primary radiation therapy or palliative radiation therapy for bone metastasis, for pain control, or palliative intent. In addition to that, they have had probably one or two rounds of chemotherapy. By that, I mean frontline, second line, or at least six cycles of docetaxel-based therapy. And when you look at that, the marrow reserve may be actually compromised from, obviously, from baseline. So uh, dosimetry is important. Obviously, there are key differences between external beam radiation therapy and radioligand-based uh, therapy. Uh, I think that having the right team of people, you know, working with you in a multidisciplinary fashion to, number one, uh, de uh, determine who is the ideal patient, you know, uh, how do you move the patient from the operational perspective through treatment, and equally important, who's going to quarterback the patient? To me, as a prostate cancer uh, expert, it is critically important who quarterbacks the care of these patients. I continue to believe that should be medical oncology uh, with partnership with either nuclear medicine or radiation oncology, depends on who actually is managing those patients at your uh, respective institutions. But when you look at the side effects, you look at actually side effects that are uh, often seen in more than 20%, fatigue, dry mouth, nausea, and hematologic toxicities are probably the biggest issue that we see. When you look at, again, lab abnormalities, obviously, marrow suppression re remains the number one priority for us to pay attention to. Anemia, uh, thrombocytopenia, and leukopenia are very important for us because they either allow us to select the right patient for trial or may actually uh, 
prevent us from actually selecting that patient or to continue therapy for those patients who may be having marrow compromise. So I think you have to start thinking as to those acute uh, side effects and also those long-term side effects that can compromise the quality of life uh, of the, our patients with castration-resistant disease. What key clinical questions remain and how are trials aiming to address these? So the future of diagnostics is quite bright. I think there is a lot of excitement about how we're going to move forward in the field. Uh, I think that throughout this ASCO, we saw many examples of how the field is moving forward. This slide reflects a couple of the sort of unique and interesting presentations that we have. On the left, you can see LUPARP, which is a phase one trial uh, from Dr. Sandus and her team looking at uh, lutetium PSMA uh, plus a PARP inhibitor, in this case, olaparinib. Uh, again, in an uncontrolled fashion, by that I mean patients were not required to have a biomarker positive disease uh, that would make them candidates for PARP inhibitors. So it was basically unrestricted of DNA repair deficiencies, BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, or for that matter, HRR. This was a study that looked at lutetium uh, given every six weeks, six cycles with a laparinib in a three, uh, typical modified Fibonacci schema. You can see uh, PSA responses or PSA decline, and you can see some, uh, they didn't meet any DLT, but you could see, see some of the unique side effects related to therapy. So I think that uh, they're moving forward with a randomized phase two, looking at, again, at the combination, and we'll see what that data looks like. Very unique study. On the right, you can see the Scott Tagawa's data, looking at uh, TAT and our, uh, you know, two different uh, radioligand-based approaches. Bigger question for us is, is a lutetium the only agent that we should use, or can we start using new radioligand-based approaches? This is trying to address the question of two different radioligands, ACJ5191, plus lutetium in this case, and you can see, again, significant PSF reductions. Uh, some DLTs uh, obviously were seen, and therefore they capped up uh, the MPD based upon those. Anemia, thrombocytopenia, and some pain were the most common side effects. But I think the future is bright for our, uh, for our patients for the field with this class of agents. How might theranostics impact the future management of prostate cancer now and in the future? So the way that we do prostate cancer drug development is quite imperfect, at least in my personal opinion, because uh, drug development in prostate cancer has always been predicated at the endpoint that one selects for drug registration. If it is survival, obviously it takes uh, a long period of time for us to actually get there if you start too early. So that's why we tend to actually do drug development late in the game and then start moving those treatments when we know the efficacy safety into the natural history of prostate cancer. So when you look at here, you can see on the left uh, examples of the drugs that we're trying to actually complete in the metastatic hormone uh, castration sensitive prostate cancer space. And on the right, in the metastatic castration-resistant space. Let's just start with the castration-resistant space. You can see uh, trials such as PSMA-4, looking at lutetium PSMA against an androgen receptor inhibitor, a splash, eclipse, and PR-21. Again, different trials trying to address the same question. New radioligand-based therapies against the standard of care, period. The NSAP is also another interesting trial looking at the combination of an androgen receptor inhibitor, uh, so-called ensalutamide, which is commonly used for us in both castration-sensitive and castration-resistant disease against ensalutamide. So I think these trials will shape a little bit of how we use radioligand-based therapy in the castration-resistant disease and the setting in which we use it. 
On the left, you can see in the castration sensitive space, basically moving completely from the resistant state to the castration sensitive space where we have made significant improvements in outcome with the use of adrenal biosynthesis inhibitors and also androgen receptor inhibitors, along with docetaxel-based approaches. And you can see again, PSMA addition, at from PSMA and bullseye, really trying to address, can we use radioligand-based therapy earlier in the natural history of this disease to really drive outcome on top of the standard agents that we use? Thank you for those interesting insights, Professor Garcia. Now let's move on to our next topic with Dr. Jason Starr, who will discuss theranostic approaches in gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumours. Hi there, I'm Dr. Jason Starr. I'm a GI medical oncologist over at Mayo Clinic and the Florida campus. And uh, today we're going to be talking about or addressing diagnostic and treatment challenges with radiopharmaceuticals and learning from theranostic approach in GEPNETs. How have radiopharmaceuticals impacted the diagnosis and treatment of GEPNETs in recent years? So the advent of radiopharmaceuticals uh, for the treatment of GEPNETs has been paradigm shifting. Um, and we use the technology in, in two ways, as the uh, name implies, theranostics. So we use a receptor on the cell for both therapy and diagnostic value. And this allows us to give targeted therapy and offer high sensitivity imaging for this disease. And because of the work of many of along the way, uh, lutetium-177 dotatate was uh, finally approved. I say finally because in Europe they had it many years prior, uh, was finally approved in the U.S. in January of 2018. Uh, as we'll go over some of the data, you know, this therapy offers uh, disease control with limited toxicity uh, and, and generally speaking, much more tolerable than therapies that we have historically uh, used in this disease. Uh, certainly any therapy comes with its possibility of having side effects. So we watch for any kidney toxicity, which has pretty much been eliminated with uh, the uh, amino acid infusions prior to treatment. Um, or during treatment, I should say, uh, hematotoxicity, so we watch the blood counts closely, and then possible hepatotoxicity, which we really haven't seen as long as patients have baseline function is, is adequate. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we select patients based on whether or not they have somatostatin receptor, avidity, or SUV uptake, uh, and we give it a, a something called a Krenning score to determine which patients are really going to benefit from the therapy. Because the therapy could sound great, we got to make sure it's going to work for that patient. And then we determine, you know, as we would with any patient, other factors uh, when you're considering, you know, is this the appropriate treatment? What are the key efficacy outcomes for radiopharmaceuticals in the treatment of GEPNETs? So, from the Netter 1 clinical trial, which was the seminal article published in the New England Journal of Medicine with Dr. Strasberg as the first author, that trial set the tone for the approval of the therapy. And, you know, the progression-free survival that we saw in this phase three trial was really unprecedented. And the control arm was long-acting octreotide, and we saw a 20-month improvement of progression-free survival. So clearly uh, an effective therapy. The overall survival, it, it was not powered for overall survival. So it did not reach statistical significance, but uh, about a year 
in terms of uh, a trend towards uh, improved overall survival. Now, this was only mid-get neuroendocrine tumors. And so pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, we really don't have prospective data yet. Uh, we will. Uh, there's many trials ongoing right now that are studying uh, PNETs prospectively, but we do have retrospective data, mostly from Rotterdam in the Netherlands, which do show that for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, there does appear to be a similar benefit in terms of uh, progression-free survival, almost you know very close to what we saw in Netter one. The overall response rate is pretty high, uh, you know, in the, in the pooled analysis at forty percent. But this is typically peanuts are more aggressive disease, so you would expect a higher response rate. And then the median overall survival, again, hovers around what we saw in Netter 1. So I think if you're considering PRRT, whether it be a gastro, uh, ga uh, a mid-gut or small bowel, or whether it be a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, I think that it's, it's a efficacious therapy in both settings. What are the key safety considerations for radiopharmaceuticals in patients with GAPNETs? When uh, we decide on PRRT as the, as the right treatment for our patient, we monitor the patient for a few uh, adverse events of interest, special interests maybe, uh, in that the patient can develop cytopenias. Most of, a, most of the cytopenias are transient, although 4% can be uh, patients could have persistent hematologic dysfunction, meaning cytopenias. And the one that I invariably talk to patients about is treatment-related myeloid neoplasms. In Netter 1, uh, the, the number's kind of um, been, been about 2 to 3%, and you could see 2.61% as the mean. Um, we saw a little bit higher uh, incidence of this in, in some, from some of our Australian colleagues, maybe sequencing of therapies is going to have a higher incidence of treatment-related myeloid neoplasms, but we definitely need to talk to patients about this. Otherwise, the treatment is tolerated exceptionally well. The most common side effects that I'll typically see are some joint achiness, some mild nausea, some mild diarrhea, but you could see here that the incidence of grade anything greater than grade three as far as an AE was around 41%. Most of these were laboratory abnormalities as opposed to patients having actual physical symptoms. So overall, if you compare PRRT in, uh, with something like Everolimus, you know, PRRT would be much better tolerated. Obviously, the treatment-related myeloid neoplasms need to be discussed. It's not a high uh, incidence, but uh, it, definitely something that patients need to know when going into the therapy. How can clinicians best integrate radiopharmaceuticals into the clinical setting to ensure optimal outcomes for patients with GAPNETs? You know, when evaluating a patient with a neuroendocrine tumor, because it's a very nuanced disease uh, and because there is many things to consider, you really want a multidisciplinary team and you want a tumor board so that you can discuss patients on multiple levels, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, the nuclear medicine specialist, the gastroenterologist, uh, the surgical oncologist, all need to have a seat at the table to decide what is the best treatment for this specific patient. I will tell you that no two patients that I would see back to back 
are going to get the same therapy uh, because it's just a, it's a different disease in everyone. So you need a really good pathologist to show that it is indeed a well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumor. You need good imaging. Um, so you need to confirm that the somatostatin receptors are present. So you need to choose one of those theranostics, uh, one of those scans, the radionuclide scans that we discussed. And then we need to involve the nephrologist if you know we see that there's renal uh, dysfunction. We have a a uh, nephro-oncologist here at Mayo that we that that helps us with this. Uh, hepatic function. So, you know, it, what's the bilirubin? Uh, is there impending, you know, liver failure, uh, which would be problematic? And then pre-existing bone marrow issues, right? Do they have cytopenias at baseline that are going to maybe be compounded? Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a way to predict who's going to develop a treatment-related myeloid neoplasm, but we're working on that uh, in the form of a chip which is the clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. And then obviously patients have, have to have adequate functional status. They have to be able to understand the radiation precautions in terms of comprehension. Uh, and then discussing other therapies with the patient in terms of, is this the best treatment at this time? Uh, does this uh, compromise any potential treatments moving forward? So, a lot to consider, and that's why you really need a strong team of uh, clinicians who have a vested interest in neuroendocrine tumors. How might clinical trials help address the key remaining questions about the use of radiopharmaceuticals in GEPNETs? So we have miles to go before we sleep in terms of uh, developing new therapies, better therapies for our patients with this disease. And, you know, some of the directions that are, you know, that we're going in, in terms of building on the data that we have for uh, PRRT are, you know, do we have uh, ways to prognosticate or predict benefit from PRRT with the pre-PRRT imaging, i.e. the burden of disease, the SUV uptake of the disease? Does, is that going to be prognostic or predictive? for benefit of PRRT. The next frontier of PRRT, uh, we believe, could be alpha-emitting therapies. And so, you know, we're highly anticipating, you know, the these two agents, the 212 lead and the 225 actinium, to determine can we build upon this technology and this approach to make the treatment better. Alpha therapy is uh, has a higher linear en energy transfer uh, alpha therapy induces more double-stranded DNA breaks as opposed to single-stranded. Uh, it, it travels a shorter dif distance as opposed to uh, beta therapy. So a lot of anticipation about alpha particle therapy, but we need the data. And additionally, the sequencing of therapy, radio sensitizers, the list goes on. And this was a study from ASCO, which looked at FDG-PET in addition to your somatostatin receptor imaging and showed that when patients had FDG uptake, they tended to do worse, regardless of grade. This trial here is the alpha therapy, as I mentioned. Uh, we have the safety data here from the phase one. We have the recommended phase three dose. And so, we are uh, currently in process of conducting the phase three trial as it relates to this uh, approach. We would like to uh, have our patients benefit from the uh, genomic profiling, uh, you know, 
kind of modern medicine, the the next generation sequencing to see if this helps predict which patients will benefit more from PRRT or less um, and help us guide therapies in the future. Uh, so this is uh, something that's being looked at in conjunction with the COMPOSE trial. And then lastly, again, the prognostic value of the upfront uh, pet in this instant to see if this would per, uh, have any prognostic value with the lutetium-177 dotatoc. So uh, again, prognostic here would be interesting to see if this will offer predictive value as well. Thank you for those interesting insights, Dr. Starr. Now let's move on to our next topic with Dr. Eric Mitra, who will discuss the challenges and opportunities for implementation of radiopharmaceuticals in oncology practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Eric Mitra. I'm a nuclear medicine physician at Oregon Health and Science University. I'm the section chief of molecular imaging and therapy, as well as the director of the radiopharmaceutical therapy program. The title of this presentation is Radiopharmaceuticals for Adult Solid Tumors, Challenges and Opportunities for Implementation. How can nuclear medicine specialists and oncologists work effectively together to successfully implement radiopharmaceuticals into oncology practice? This is such an important um, area for discussion because it's impossible to provide radiopharmaceuticals successfully in oncology without the two key people of nuclear medicine specialists or radiation oncologists together who are um, often called authorized users by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, as well as the referring physician, which typically is a medical or surgical oncologist. So that is the, the two people who have to clo very closely work together to be able to have uh, a decision about whether this type of treatment is appropriate for the patient at this time. Uh, first and foremost, and then in addition to that, to uh, also be able to continue to work together in terms of properly delivering the therapy, handling any toxicities or other issues that come up during the course of the therapy, and then also in terms of appropriate follow-up after the therapy is done. And then two other things I'd like to stress is that ultimately, although those are the two key individuals involved in this process, Ultimately, the actual delivery of the therapy is a very large multidisciplinary team effort, including those two individuals, but also nursing staff, radiation safety, um, the, uh, the primary officer, as well as additional staff there as well, medical physicists, both for the imaging component involved with the therapy, as well as the delivery of the therapy, especially when in considering dosimetry approaches. And then last but not least, our radiochemists and pharmacists and technologists to be able to uh, actually produce and deliver the treatment. So this uh, group will look slightly different across different institutions and different types of um, practices, but those are the sort of key elements that are uh, important to bring together to properly deliver this therapy. What is the value of radiopharmaceutical theranostics in achieving high-precision medicine in oncology? As cancer care is evolving, we're moving more to a uh, precision or personalized model of delivery so that the specific therapy that we give we know is uh, appropriate mostly for that individual patient as opposed to uh, other patients who may have the same disease process but don't exhibit the same parameters, whether that's uh, receptor expression or genetics or other biomarkers that uh, we're looking at. 
So the Theranostics approach uh, that is used with different radiopharmaceuticals is exactly appropriate for this personalized uh, technique because uh, we are first and foremost using the imaging to be able to identify which patients have the appropriate receptor expression that would be then the target of the therapy. And what we're finding uh, is that in some cases, there's very homogeneous uh, receptor expression for that patient across all of their disease sites, whereas other patients may have very heterogeneous uptake, and then other patients may not have uptake uh, or receptor expression at all. So right from the front, this approach allows you to properly select the patient for that type of therapy. Um, And then furthermore, we are able to use that same target then to deliver the actual therapeutic radioisotope, which then will cause harm to those cancer cells and at the very least cause uh, them, them to stop growing, but in a ideal model will actually cause some reduction in the tumor size. Uh, in either case, the goal is to um, extend the progression-free survival and the overall survival for that patient. And lastly, we can then again go back to the imaging and look at the response that that particular therapy has had, because again, we're targeting the same ligand or or receptor. So together with conventional imaging, such as CT and MRI, the Theranostics approach allows us to properly select patients, treat the patient, evaluate the response, and then bring all of this together in a very personalized approach for the patient. What are the barriers to the adoption of radiopharmaceuticals as a gold standard treatment in adult oncology? So in one sense, this uh, Theranostics approach is very straightforward because we are delivering a targeted radiopharmaceutical based on proper patient selection. Um, and so you would think that the uh, uh, delivery of this is uh, relatively straightforward. Unfortunately, there are actually a number of different challenges or opportunities that we need to think about and keep in mind as we're developing this, both at the institution level, but also uh, nationally and worldwide. So The first one is the referral pathways and multidisciplinary team can sometimes be confusing um, or there isn't enough individuals available to form the full multidisciplinary team that was mentioned, uh, depending on the institution. Generally speaking, there are workforce and training considerations to keep in mind because the growth of these theranostics approaches has been so rapid and the volumes can be so high that we definitely need more people who are within the workforce and getting properly trained uh, to do them. Uh, again, going back to the each individual institution, the treatment infrastructure can uh, vary widely, and uh, there may be considerations that uh, certain approaches are not entirely uh, appropriate for delivering the high-quality theranostics uh, approach, and so that needs to be overcome. The growth, it also affects the logistical and supply chains across the world and across individual areas where there may be limitations in the availability or delivery of the radiopharmaceuticals to that institution. And lastly, um, the governance and regulation, both again at the worldwide and uh, national and local levels are still being worked out. And sometimes there's confusion about licensing requirements and the guidelines for uh, doing these types of therapies. And so that is uh, one last area, but importantly, that needs to be uh, evaluated. What strategies do you suggest to help overcome the barriers associated with adopting radiopharmaceuticals in oncology? So we just discussed a number of different uh, barriers that 
uh, may affect the delivery of the theranostics um, depending on the location uh, that this is being done. But luckily, there are different uh, uh, opportunities as well to overcome many of those barriers. So starting from the uh, top of what we discussed, the referral pathways can be easily clarified within each institution, depending on the key individuals who are working on the on that theranostics approach. Similarly, the multidisciplinary team, although it may not be the same across different institutions, just need to be identified so that everyone knows exactly who is working on that um, team. The workforce and training is being developed at the society levels in terms of more awareness of these types of providers and also providing additional training for those who are already within within the system. For instance, there's development of uh, Theranostics fellowships is, is one example of that. The treatment infrastructure is interesting because uh, it can often be confusing, and sometimes people think that the uh, requirements are actually higher than they are. But again, understanding what are the basic requirements for delivering this treatment, as well as what the more advanced requirements are, but being very clear about that and then working with the key people to develop those at your local institution can help overcome that challenge. The logistical and supply chain issues are being worked on by the pharma companies as well as um, other others to improve the availability of the radiopharmaceuticals and the delivery of them to institutions throughout the world and throughout the um, country. The governance and regulation, I think, will ultimately be worked out as we start to do these uh, therapies more frequently. And lastly, um, developing patient support uh, guidelines uh, are also being worked on and I think will help ease this for all patients. Where do you see radiopharmaceuticals within oncology in the next five years? I think where we are right now with the uh, recent approvals of some of the treatments for neuroendocrine tumors and prostate cancer, among others, is just the very start. And there's going to be a huge amount of growth across those approved therapies as well as new treatments. Um, so to just kind of talk about that in a little bit more detail with the approved therapies, there's a significant amount of optimization that can happen to those. For instance, one uh, thing that's often talked about is that we're currently using a standardized uh, dose for all different types of patients, regardless of their size, regardless of their distribution of disease, and regardless of their heterogeneity of their receptor expression. But all of those factors can, I think, be adjusted in the future to help optimize the efficacy of the treatment as well as minimize the uh, toxicity from the treatment. And so we're learning uh, a lot about that. And there's ongoing clinical trials related to that. In addition to that, there will be many more new indications which are currently being uh, evaluated, again, in clinical trials, both at the basic science level and translational level. So there will be new targets for new types of cancers with new ligands and new uh, isotopes um, that are all being looked at. So if you think about the combination of all those things, you can see why there's going to be a huge amount of growth, uh, in my opinion, within the field of oncology. And lastly, we talked about some of the uh, issues related to the infrastructure and delivery. And those, uh, as they continue to be expanded, will mean that the uh, these types of therapies will be available more widely across patients throughout the world and uh, not just in large cities or centers, but in smaller uh, areas as well. And the virtual approach to be able to have access to multidisciplinary tumor boards 
in uh, larger institutions for smaller institutions, for instance, is one example of how we can overcome some of these um, barriers. So I think it will just continue to grow at a very rapid rate. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. Additional content on related topics can be found on touchendocrinology.com. Thank you.